Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I am so excited to announce that I've teamed up with Mark Nathan to bring you The Consumer VC Summit. It's going to be from October 13th through 15th, and will be three days of discussions, talks, from some of the top investors in CPG. So some of the industries we're going to be focusing on are food and bev, beauty and personal care, femtech, cannabis. There's going to be also lots of networking opportunities. And if you're a founder, we're going to have one-on-one mentoring sessions with investors. To get your tickets, head over to summit.theconsumervc.com. That'll also be located in the show notes. We cannot wait, and we're excited to see you there. Thank you, Soraya Darabi, for the intro to our guest today, Maya Horgan from Odu. Maya is the partner and founder of Ingressive Capital. Ingressive Capital is an early venture capital fund located in Nigeria and invests in founders and companies in sub-Saharan Africa. Some of her investments include Paystack, Awabike, and Vessi Cash. It was amazing learning how she thinks about the sub-Saharan African landscape, how she decides to enter new African markets, and some of the regulation and policy changes she has to face. Without further ado, here's Maya. Maya, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be a part. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This is a quite an unusual episode for this podcast, which I'm really excited since you're a first investor that's based in Africa and that invests in sub-Saharan Africa. I wanted to talk to you about the beginning. What inspired you to found Ingressive? And just tell me a little bit about Ingressive's mission. Yeah. So there are a few things that led to the founding of the company. The first one is I'm half Nigerian and half American. And my dad, before I was born, came to the US with his brothers. They mainly all settled in Minnesota. A bunch of them stayed in Minnesota to build their businesses and some of them returned back to Nigeria. And so I actually grew up with this really interesting case study of watching Nigerians in the US, Nigerians in Nigeria, same you know background, gender, education, all that kind of stuff. The only differentiating factor where they were building their businesses. And I watched those in the US with relatively less barriers and infrastructure issues, you know, general access to finance, scale their businesses. And then those on the continent facing insurmountable or seemingly insurmountable challenges from political to like demographic to lack of infrastructure to lack of financing, et cetera, et cetera. And I found those on the continent, despite having significantly more challenges in building their businesses when they did succeed at a scale much larger than their counterparts in the U.S. And so it showed me one that when there is higher risk, there is higher reward. And the other thing was I'm really, really passionate about providing opportunity in emerging markets, specifically Nigeria, where where I'm from. And technology has the lowest barriers to entry and is the sort of the most meritocratic form of entrepreneurship that exists on the continent, I would argue. And however, I can do my part to bring that access to brilliant people, no matter where they're located. That's sort of my mission. I love that. That's amazing. What are some of like examples of companies where they've been able to break down the the infrastructure barriers and maybe the policy barriers in Nigeria that have been able to go on to great success? 
So it's funny because as far as on the regulation side, what we see is companies kind of operate under the radar and can do business as usual until the government and the regulatory entity catches up with where the progress of the startup sector has gone. And then they create a bunch of cumbersome and difficult to navigate policies that kind of either stifle businesses or create some like very interesting back and forth and back and forth until they reach a, a happy medium. And that's in Nigeria specifically. In Ghana, their president is very amenable to startup and tech and entrepreneurship, same relatively with Kenya, um, given mobile money, et cetera. So it really, I'd have to be sort of country specific in giving my answer. But as far as Nigeria, one of our portfolio companies, Paystack, actually, they are the stripe for Africa. And Shola was the first African business to participate in Y Combinator and scale his business across the continent. So that's one of them that we have here in Nigeria. And uh, another one is 54G and another one of our portfolio companies that went on to, to participate in Y Combinator as well, and actually just raised a 15 million Series A led by Adjuvant, which is an IFC fund. And with them, they're building the first genetic bank for Africa, the first biobank. So what we find today is that, or now, is that um, pharmaceutical products don't really test on the African genome and don't really do a lot of research for their products and discovery using African DNA. And so this is the first company that's really targeting the African genome and building drug discovery opportunities based on that. So we're seeing very interesting innovations happening in the financial services, the healthcare sector, and actually in telecommunications, ISP generally. Given the dynamics of the African market and um, how, especially in Nigeria, there's really unstable power, companies have to find find either, and also how expensive data is, one gigabyte in Nigeria is about $2.20, and the GDP per capita is around just under $2,000 per annum. So data is expensive. And when building solutions and various technologies, entrepreneurs not only have to consider low bandwidth or, or that the consumer has a very low tolerance for data consumption, but also that there will be energy and infrastructure barriers that they have to take into account when, say, if they have to be 100% online, if it's a you know a streaming service, anything like that. So we're seeing really interesting renewable energy solutions given the issue with power and infrastructure. We're seeing a lot kind of across the board of low cost, typically high volume, low margin businesses on the continent. Wow, that's amazing. Thanks so much for giving us that analysis. That's excellent. When I think about some of the investments that's gone into Africa on the technology side, I think about what's happening in Kenya and the fintech and what's been happening in fintech over the past few years over there. But would love to just kind of hear about how you think about the different regions of Africa and what and why you're so focused on sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. So actually, we're not just focused on sub-Saharan Africa anymore. We actually do Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, and Egypt in North Africa. So when we're thinking about where we're investing, we're looking for places that have a sizable population. And Nigeria, a country with 200 million and its largest city, Lagos, is 20 million people, which is almost, what, three times the size of New York City. Or Ghana, next door, has 29 million and about 1.5 in its largest city. It's significantly smaller, but the ease of doing business is in comparison. And also it has a very strong currency. So the CD, Ghana's currency, just ranked the strongest currency next to the US dollar globally this year, obviously pre-COVID. But Kenya has about 50 million people and then Egypt has 98 million. And so we look at the size of the population. We look at the regulatory environment. So which countries have the most stable democratic transitions, have relatively predictable sort of regulation and political infrastructure or have allyships with uh, Western nations 
ease of doing business and cross-border growth will be fairly seamless. We also look at the places where the key hubs of venture capital dollars, liquidity events and uh, you know mergers and acquisitions on the continent. And those typically are Nigeria competing for first between Nigeria and South Africa. South Africa is, is generally second, sometimes first. And then it's Kenya, Ghana, and Egypt. So these are the top recipients of venture capital dollars and where we're seeing the most liquidity events from M&A activity, IPO, domestic or foreign acquisitions. The other reasons we look at these regions is where are the lowest cost of data. So if you look at sort of a, a data map or a map of data costs across the continent, you'll see it ranges from about, you know, Nigeria or West Africa, Southern Africa can be the lowest around like a dollar fifty to two dollar fifty per gigabyte to like the DRC and some sort of war-torn countries where it can be up to $60 per gigabyte of data. And so we're looking for the places on the continent where not only are there low costs of data, so it's, you know, you look at the average income of the citizen and then you compare that to the the data costs and then you look at mobile penetration. So we're looking at countries that have above 90% mobile penetration and then at least 50, you know, between 45 to 55 or above percent internet penetration which means people are actually using data on their phones and engaging with technology products. And then as far as some macro features on the continent, we're typically looking at businesses that start in one region then can scale across other countries and and at least their geographic area within the continent. But typically we look for pan-African or international businesses. And then lastly, we're mainly in this sort of B2B space. So we look at businesses that are targeting Africa's traditional billion dollar sector. So you check out the GDP of our target populations and we invest in tech-enabled solutions targeting the main contributors to the to the GDP. The last thing is there's 1.2 billion people on the on the African continent and uh, 70% of them are under the age of 35 and a, on almost 50% of them are under the age of 15. So it's a really young population. We also have the fastest growing middle class in the world and typically given any year we have three of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world. And so you have a really young population. They all have mobile devices. The per capita GDP is relatively low. You know, it's the emerging market still, but you have all these people who are on their phone and engaging with technology. So as I mentioned before, these sort of high volume, low margin businesses, especially in the financial services space, we're really seeing take off. Amazing. Thanks so much for really painting us a picture about specific regions in Africa and also Africa as a whole. That's really helpful. How are you thinking, when you think about these companies that have the opportunity to go pan-African or, you know, across border, how are you thinking about growth? Because I remember we spoke before about how there's a lot of currency fluctuations. And of course, you're dealing with different governments and just would love to kind of hear how you think about growth when you're analyzing opportunities. So when people are looking at the African continent, they say, oh, great, you have you know 1.2 billion people, 54 countries. Great. I'm going to scale across the whole thing. And what people don't really realize is how distinct and different each country really is. Like, for example, South Africa per capita GDP is around $5,000. And just you know, close neighbor is Mozambique with not even $500 per capita GDP. And it really ranges widely. You have Botswana close to you know almost $10,000. And then you have Nigeria around $2,000. So as far as the purchase, the buying power, the disposable income, the consumer profiles, it really ranges differently across the continent. And then when you look at regulation, it's wild. Nigeria, for example, just not even getting into regulation yet, but the strength of the currency, the Nigerian Naira has decreased in value by what, 30% against the USD this year alone, which means, yeah, we went from a mid 300 per dollar to almost 500 Naira per dollar in a matter of a few months. And so that devaluation 
valuation and how it affects the business models and the margins and also any companies importing products or, you know, domestically manufacturing that that can be so impactful on the business model versus again, as I mentioned before, the CD, which is the strongest currency next to the dollar in the world. And so when entrepreneurs are thinking about where they're starting their business, they typically will, or the model that we've seen work is they target very big urban area and stay sort of capitalized on that total addressable market within that one country where they're based. Or they focus on, for example, West Africa has the ECOWAS. And so there are a bunch of trade treaties and sort of standardized regulation that make it easier for businesses to expand across a region. So East Africa is just sort of working out their own. And so we can see some of that. But really what I've seen as most effective is when a company partners with a traditional industry that has business branches across the continent already and they provide a service, either a technology solution or access to a consumer demographic that that traditional business doesn't already have. For example, say a business launches in Nigeria in the financial services space and they have a B2C solution that are targeting a customer base that the bank doesn't already have access to. Let's say, for example, farmers or Malam, which are currency traders or any sort of traders. And they partner with a traditional bank incumbent who has branches across, say, you know, 10, 20 African nations. They can literally partner as a JV or as a service provider with that bank in order to get access to customer bases across the continent. So if anyone's looking or thinking about, you know, I have this technology solution on the continent or I want to, I want to come into the continent, my strong advice would be find a service provider domestically that has boots on the ground on the continent and partner with them in the nation, in the first nation where you're looking to operate and then just sort of tag along with them in the other areas where they're doing business. Got it. So it seems like in terms of international expansion of in Africa, it seems like it's a lot of partnerships. Is that kind of right in terms of how you expand it into different countries? Yeah. And I would definitely say so because it's necessary, you know, unlike different places in the world, especially in the Western world, where you really can launch an online business, the typical African consumer still requires some component of offline integration, especially so, for example, again, in Nigeria, there's a very high rates of mobile penetration, very high rates of tech enablement. However, the average consumer is fearful of digital transactions given, you know, fraud, et cetera, et cetera. So they don't want to have to put their credit card information on something online and they don't want to necessarily make a direct bank transfer. The majority of the population, you know, only about 25, a little over 25% actually are banked. There's a huge opportunity with the underbanked African population at large. And so having that offline component, even if they do, they are using their mobile devices, which will require you to have boots on the ground. And given how different the typical African business is, there is fairly low trust on the continent, especially relative to Western nations, given the sort of, I'll say, underdeveloped legal and, and judicial systems. And so it's a very low trust environment in the countries where I mentioned, and people do work with people that they know. And so you need to have someone on ground that has a real relationship with government officials, with private sector officials, with traditional corporations, because people do work with people that they know. Got it. Wow. That makes a lot of sense in terms of establishing consumer trust and fraud prevention. Why partnership is very necessary. And as well as it's also necessary to obviously have deep relationships because it seems like other companies are still pretty wary unless you are obviously have those deep relationships. I remember our previous conversation where you, you mentioned how lots of folks talk about the incredible innovation that's happening in Kenya, but 75% of those companies were founded by expats. And I know that you're very focused on building local entrepreneurial communities in sub-Saharan Africa and now Egypt. Want to know what your process is for building out these communities? 
Yeah. And so we do invest in companies that have at least one indigenous African equity owner. And that is because we we truly believe, so one, we want to build up the local African ecosystem, but also we believe that those who understand their customer best are those that have the closest connection to them. And so we like to see somebody who looks like the target consumer for whom they're building products actually on the core team, making decisions, you know, part of building the products for that demographic. And so as far as building the ecosystem or I guess first I'll answer the Kenya expat phenomena that's that's seeming to happen. What I see on the continent is that the places where it's easiest to live is the places where we see concentrations of expats. Like Ghana, it's relatively easy to live there. You know, they have fairly stable power. There's nice things to do on the weekend. There's, you know, international restaurants. There's a relatively stable currency. The president is very amenable to FDI and is doing all these sort of international events to attract, you know, like last year was the year of return where he had all these international celebrities come and do these campaigns to recruit people to come back to Ghana. Kenya, you have, you know, all the safaris and the nice standard of living and, you know, it's relatively safe and it's predictable and you can almost, you know, these are some of the places on the continent you can go backpacking. Nigeria, you cannot really even get a visa unless you know somebody on ground and are coming there for a real specific business opportunity. And in any given day, my power, no matter where you are, we're in the Hilton, we're in anyone's home. If you're connected to the central grid, your power will go off probably 20 times a day, often on probably 20 times a day. So everyone has to have an independent generator. It's just rougher. The streets are lower quality. I mean, it's nice to live there. I I live there and and my life is fine. But as far as standard of living compared to say, if you're transitioning from the United States, Ghana and Kenya are very smooth and Rwanda are very smooth transitions as opposed to Nigeria and even, you know, Egypt and elsewhere on the continent, I would say trickier. There's a real difference. And so we see the concentrations of these sort of expat led businesses happening in Ghana and Kenya and less so happening in Egypt and Nigeria. And there's a number of reasons, but I, I really think it's rooted in like, where, where do you see the impact organizations locating? Where do you see it easiest for people to live and enjoy their, their standard of living? And where do people actually just want to be building businesses because they have a nice life is, is the places that I mentioned where you're seeing those profiles. As far as starting from the ground and building initiatives. So I'll explain sort of our series of businesses and it'll make sense as to why we're doing the thing that we're doing. We had the advisory company we started in 2014 bringing, driving international investors to come to the continent as well as international technology companies. We work with, you know, maybe 50 house, household names from Silicon Valley assisting either their top executives or, you know, their firm at large to enter and operate the African market or make local investments. And our clients went on to make about 40 deals. And then in 2017, we actually launched an investment fund, Ingressive Capital Fund One, with a number of these clients from the advisory firm. And um, the way that our fund is structured, given this, is that 80% of our limited partners in our own fund. So 80% of the investors who put money in our fund run their own later stage funds. And so that was intentional because there is a dearth of capital and sort of like the five to $20 million fundraising space. And so what we wanted to ensure is that we make the early stage, the pre-seed and seed stage investment, and then we can pass the portfolio companies on to our limited partners who can get those guys, you know, essentially all the way to IPO. And what we didn't solve for was the earlier stuff. So how do we increase the pipeline? Okay. Well, you you know, we've got it. Once we make the investment, we can sort of help the company along and scale a liquidity event. But how do we increase the pipeline and ensure increasing opportunities for Africans in general? We don't want this to be some sort of nepotistic or, you know, exclusive to those Africans who've only traveled and studied internationally and have this global network or what have you. So how do we ensure that everyone on the continent, no matter your background, your upbringing, any of those things, as long as you're brilliant and you're hungry, you have the resources you need to build a tech company or to join a tech company. And that's where this year we launched Ingressive for Good 
And that organization does micro scholarships, so sponsoring computer science degrees at top computer science universities that produce technical talent. And it buys laptops and data for African youth, and it pays for their ed tech courses online. So micro scholarships, technical skills development, and talent placement. And so that's our contribution to really sort of growing the African technical talent pool as well as the founder pool. That's amazing. That's really impressive what you're doing, and especially providing these resources and education resources to folks on the ground. That's awesome. I want to talk a little bit about exits and how you think about exits. You know, with a thin investor base and, and maybe undeveloped capital markets, I would think that exiting from successful investments could be difficult. Have you seen that or not so much? Yeah. So actually, I would say that despite the fact that there's few pre-seed and seed stage funds that are actively investing, and there's a limited number of domestic funds that are investing in the tech sector across sub-Saharan in Africa. Majority of the capital that's actually coming into these companies is international. And that means what we're seeing is Western funds and now Eastern funds as well, Japan, China, as well as you know the UK, France, and the United States really actively investing in companies across Sub-Saharan Africa. Either they're shifting their investment strategy in total, raising a sidecar, or from their main fund in investing on the continent. And for example, Y Combinator in every cohort, they have between five and 15 African companies participating. Techstars, I know, regularly has African businesses and 500 Startups current class includes African businesses. We saw Andreessen Horowitz do Zipline and Branch, a East African drone delivery company and a sort of starting in West Africa fintech company, a lending company. We saw Google Ventures, GV, do Andela. Graycroft has actually led a number of fintech series days across Sub-Saharan Africa. We've seen WTI, Social Capital, DST, a number of top funds in the Valley as well as London, as well as Keppel Fund and you know a number of those who launched in both Japan and China, actively investing dozens of investments in, in tech companies on the continent. So to answer your question, though there may not be a lot of domestic venture capital funds that are investing in tech on the continent, we're actually seeing money coming in mainly from foreign investors. And so sort of just to give you an idea of the funds that were, were coming in, it has been growing very significantly. So in your past, I would say is not an indi- indication of the next year. We've actually seen 2x growth in VC dollars in the continent for the last like four years. So if, for example, in 2006, there was about 129 million dollars that came into sub-Saharan Africa through 146 companies. In 2017, that was $560 million into 124 companies. In 2018, that was $1.2 billion into 454 countries. In 2019, that was over $2 billion. And this year, with Helios Towers listing on the London Stock Exchange for $1.45 billion, with Helios, a private equity firm listing on the Toronto Stock Exchange, Jumia, the Nigerian e-commerce listing on the New York Stock Exchange, and then InterSwitch, a, a fintech B2B business started in Nigeria, based out of Nigeria, soon to be listing on the London Stock Exchange. There's just so much happening. So as far as our strategy, so that was sort of like the macro what's happening. As far as our strategy is we are mainly anticipating that the liquidity events will happen in our portfolio and have happened in our portfolio in one, secondary share sales to later stage private equity funds, both domestically and internationally. And then the majority of activity will be through mergers and acquisitions. And that's what we're seeing sort of across the board in the ecosystem. Over 50% of exit events that are happening in Africa in the technology sector are through M&A activity. And that's typically one of two forms. That's international firms acquiring domestic assets is their market entry strategy. Because as I mentioned, you need to have boots on the ground in order to be operating successfully across 
the African continent. Or we see traditional industry players like traditional banks or traditional telecommunications companies acquiring the technology of early stage startups in order to implement that tech enablement that they traditionally didn't have. And so that's what we're seeing as far as now, today, the liquidity space and what we anticipate, and, and at least our fund one, again, mainly M&A and mainly secondary share sales, but we're also seeing IPOs, but that's the final sort of development phase of a technology ecosystem. If you check the Chinese development of technology, if you check the India market over the last you know, 20, 30 years, it really starts with the initial you know, domestic IPOs and M&A activity. It starts with the B2B financial services. It starts with the telecommunications. Then it starts with B2C financial services, then e-commerce, and then sort of explodes. And then we see the correlating with that, we see towards the end of that sort of process around the time of the explosion is when the companies start doing both domestic major billion dollar IPOs and international IPOs. And we're just getting sort of to that final phase of the technology ecosystem where we're starting to see the first sort of spotlights of international IPOs. And we can only anticipate seeing the growth of companies that are happening on the continent now and really being in the weeds. I anticipate that this will significantly grow even over the next two years. No, I thank so much for listing all the different ways how you think about exits and also opportunities. First of all, really appreciate you also starting as well about all the money that's coming in from the Andreessen's of the world and all the other VC funds that you mentioned, international money, and as well as how that accumulated towards exit opportunities. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about a frontier region like West Africa? Yeah. So when I started out five years ago, things were a lot different. Now you're seeing, you know, last year, Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Square was, you know, made the announcement he's going to move to sub-Saharan Africa for several months. And we've seen, you know, across the board celebrities from, you know, Ludacris and Diddy actively looking for engagements, coming to Ghana, coming to West Africa, you know, Beyonce's recent Black is King production, really sourcing from African content. We're seeing from the entertainment space, the media space, the technology space, the active investment space, and some of the biggest players in technology globally really making a commitment, Jack Ma, you know, et cetera, et cetera, really making an active commitment to be involved in and get into the weeds of sub-Saharan Africa tech. Now it's hot, it's sexy, it's trending. But, you know, six years ago when we were really starting out by this, the questions were still, is there really internet in Africa? Is there really connectivity? You know, are people really online? How can people become developers when you guys, you know, in parts of Africa, they don't even have water? So fortunately, the sort of level of sophistication and awareness of what's happening on ground has really changed. One of the big ones is the idea that you can't build a billion dollar company in an emerging market where there's, you know, low, like sub 10,000 per capita GDP. And that we have seen time and time again is untrue. And if you even look at the companies that are publicly listed domestically, you can see that again, though the business models are fundamentally different, they're not targeting, you know, the upper middle class, the even, you know, middle class. They're really those, as I explained before, high volume, low margin businesses. They're fundamentally different. The other thing is that technology can't scale on the continent because data is expensive and people don't have a lot of money. What we're seeing is, for example, Africans are hungry for technology. We have different international solutions that are coming in to wrap 
rapidly decrease the cost of data. And as we see the privatization of the telco sector, like in Ethiopia and elsewhere on the continent, data costs will only keep coming down. In Nigeria, for example, Ghana, they're starting to subsidize the cost of fiber. So these prices will just keep decreasing. And what we've seen is traction so far, over 50% of Kenya's GDP is transacted through M-Pesa. So there is the USSD option as well as far as financial services. It doesn't have to be, you know, an app and technology. And also mobile light is the solution for that. So like, you know, Facebook had to come out with their one megabyte app as opposed to, you know, their heavy app that they're using for the Western world. So just looking at the different types of business models that can work in the local market and still allow for that scale. The other thing is that, you know, Africa is a bunch of, you know, huts and villages. Where are we really going to scale or locate our operations? And I would just encourage anyone who's that unsophisticated to just use Google because <laughs> if you Google Lagos, you know, the capital of Nigeria, you can see the incredible skyscrapers. You can see the luxury communities. You can see the developments. If you look at Accra, you can see, you know, how the, the luxury restaurants, the opportunities there as well. And similarly, look at Nairobi from the skyscrapers, from the international restaurants, from the activities that expats and locals can participate in. There's really a lot of innovation. And the other idea the misconception is that, oh, if I launch my business in, you know, X African country, I can go everywhere else. As I was mentioning before, 54 countries, 54 cultures. It's not the difference of say like New York and San Francisco. This is the difference of like, you know, US versus say Mongolia or, you know, in some parts of the continent. As I was mentioning before, we have Botswana, Namibia, their per capita GDP looks more similar and almost the same as China versus you have places like Mozambique and South Sudan and even parts of the DRC, and they are very much emerging market. And so really understanding and even the language barriers and within each country, there can be, you know, one language spoken, one predominant language. There's typically like three to four, or there can be as much as a hundred different languages spoken. And so really having to be very conscious of how different these countries are and the fact that urban city centers, so like a Lagos to a Nairobi or a Lagos to Accra or an Accra to say Cairo, the difference in the consumer and the sort of adoption of the technology will be more similar in these places than it will be, say, Lagos to Jos, which is, you know, outside in a different part of Nigeria. So similarly to other places in the world, urban city centers between African nations are more similar than urban to rural areas, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I think that really you've laid a lot of the groundwork in terms of like some of the differences of different parts of Africa and as well navigating. I mean, it reminds me too, you know, I mean, just thinking about even South Africa, there's 11 national languages in South Africa. And I'm sure like in other countries, there's a lot more. And so I remember that you saying before, and I think this was towards the beginning of our conversation, you talking about how once a company starts to do well and starts able to grow and scale, then the government comes and regulation starts happening or policy starts happening. How are you thinking about risk on that front when it comes to regulation? Yeah, it's really crazy. I haven't worked with an investor who's operating in any other part of the world that has to have, you know, regulatory risk or like anticipated volatility of regulation or transition of political leaders in their diligence. There's so many macro components that have absolutely nothing to do with the competence of the entrepreneur and the business that really can shut down a company overnight. And I've seen this, you know, in the healthcare space in the US, you know, changing policies or even, you know, the Uber in some countries, you know, the battles that are happening in California 
Estonia and London right now. So that's as similar as you can get. But really, you know, even if we're looking at uh, the mobility space exclusively, so we had Gokata raised 5.3 million, which is a ride hailing company, motorcycle taxi in Nigeria. We had Max.ng raise over 7 million in Nigeria. And then we had Opay. They're a financial services company, but they have a, a number of products like food delivery or ride hailing that's sort of to promote adoption of their financial services. And they had O-Ride, which raised over $100 million, about $120 million from China Sequoia and a number of other Chinese funds. And we saw this big boom. And on every street corner there were, you know, you could take any of these, you know, very sleek electric, or some of them electric, some of them diesel, da 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 motorcycles and, you know, safety helmets and regulated and all this great stuff. And we really saw a transition in the industry and, and a seamlessness in the industry. And everyone was rooting for this industry, specifically looking at Lagos, which is the biggest African city and where all these players were really competing to become number one. And then literally, literally overnight, the government went from working with these ride hailing companies to saying, actually, we're shutting down ride hailing entirely and nobody can operate a motorcycle on the street. And you have to understand that this isn't just a market opportunity that was developed by these tech startups. Actually, riding Kekes and Okada, so like the motorcycle, in West Africa and Greater Africa is the main means of transportation for the sort of lower and middle income Africans. And also Lagos has what top three worst traffic in the world. It's actually imperative for the productivity of the nation. And when they shut that down, they, you know, the country anticipated what a $3 billion loss in productivity in that immediate quarter or the immediate following quarters due to the removal of motorcycles. And so nobody could have anticipated that from a government that was totally amenable and trying to work, you know, really regulating the ride space, you know, creating all these policies and trying to figure out the best way of promoting employment and efficiency to literally overnight shutting down all three of these companies and anyone who was using a motorcycle or an KK, any of their ability to operate and even be on the street in Nigeria. And so nobody could anticipate that. And then what we're just seeing now is, you know, Uber and Bolt have really been competing for number one in Lagos and Nigeria at large. And it's a major source of employment. And also given COVID times is actually much more efficient and much more safe than using public transportation, these very packed buses that go from the mainland to the island and through different parts of Nigeria. And what just happened is overnight, once again, the government came in and said, actually, any taxi provider is going to have to pay, you know, $12,000 minimum to get a license. And then and just crazy fees that the average taxi driver will not be able to meet and the average taxi company will, will not be able to sustain either. It makes economics completely not make sense. And in addition to that, they said, and all vehicles need to be between one and three years old. So <laughs> essentially everyone had to go, if you want to be an Uber driver, you have to go buy a new car, which it economically just, it shuts down the industry. And so it's interesting because in most markets, it's like, yeah, we want the government to be aware of and be supportive of our business and to be, you know, involved. We want to get, you know, do PPPs and have the business opportunities that the government provides. But in Nigeria, it's almost like I would prefer that the government just, <laughs> just sort of does their own thing. <laughs> but it's so wild because you have that happening in Nigeria, where just next door in Ghana, not only is the president incredibly amenable to foreign direct investment and creating a lot of solutions that not only help domestic businesses thrive and promotes indigenous Ghanaian ownership. Like if you start a business, you have to have, I think it's about 50% ownership or co-ownership from a Ghanaian citizen just to ensure that that sort of expat takeover doesn't happen. So you have very protectionist measures for local citizens, but also very amenable and, and tax incentive incentives for foreigners looking to come and either invest or start businesses with local Ghanaians. 
so you have one market and then Kenya is another balanced market that not only for the financial service players, not only for the mobility players and Uganda as well really had a comparable in the mobility space of safe boda. And we saw that really take off in an incredible way as well as Rwanda and what President Kagame has been doing within that nation to promote foreign direct investment, to create a sort of gender balanced government entity to promote business and entrepreneurship. He created the first online free trade zone with, I believe, Alibaba last year. Like there's so much happening and so much innovation from some political leaders. And then you see others, it's, it's literally just detrimental to the technology sector. Wow. I can't even imagine, to be honest, just your story about the ride sharing and about the motorcycles. That's just really fascinating how overnight that industry can change. What is one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Within my fund, there were a lot of things that I didn't do because I didn't have a traditional venture capital or finance experience. I honestly just wanted to be an analyst at a VC fund and everywhere that I applied and everywhere that I wanted to intern was like, uh, no, you don't have the requisite skill sets or no, we don't think that you'd be you know, good at deal sourcing or you don't have the profile of a good product or project manager, da, da, da. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this myself. I'm going to start my own fund. I'm going to like you know, start working with investors directly to bring them to the continent and we'll see how that goes. And so because of that sort of avant-garde, I guess you would call it, or non-traditional background, we did a lot of things differently. So that would only democratize venture capital if more people were aware of this. And like a couple of those things just generally is realizing that one, you don't necessarily have to have a giant institutional investor or anchor investor in order to launch a fund. You don't have to have your final close in order to start investing capital. You can have your first close, which can be after your first check. So you can really just get the ball rolling and start generating traction. And so with our fund, instead of getting, you know, one, you know, 10 million or 5 million or whatever dollar institutional investor, which we likely would never have had because, you know, I'm a first time GP, no VC experience or no traditional VC experience, really just sort of entrepreneurial entrepreneurship on the continent, investing in Africa as a sole GP female, black female. So that wouldn't have worked. And so what we did instead was got roughly like 10 to 15 H&Is over a period to commit to what was cumulatively the size of an anchor LP investment. And those sort of allies who had also been our clients in the advisory firm and worked with me for a number of years in investment related businesses with that, they became our essentially what would be called an anchor. And so just like some founders shop their own term sheets around, you can and also set your own LPA and sub docs and then have a collective small ticket investor sign, which will become cumulatively the size of what would be your anchor. So just that as an example of how you can do things differently in a way that unlocks venture capital to a lot more people who are actually competent and have dope deal flow and can do a good job of investing in companies. So I would say the one thing I would change about venture capital is the way people go about fundraising and the limitations around the industry expectations that cause the limitations. Because it's not like there's only certain type of vehicle that you can use to make investments. There are many different types of funds that you can structure. And I hope that in the future, I mean, as we're seeing these rolling funds being listed on AngelList and or these rolling closes and these sort of like subscription-based investment commitments becoming more popularized and socially acceptable, I really hope that that continues in different aspects, especially when it comes to the continent where these seven to 10 year life cycle funds are not necessarily the best type of vehicle and these sort of like large ticket uh, liquidity events as opposed to revenue-based returns or things like that, I hope that there becomes acceptance of these more non-traditional ways of seeing liquidity or getting funds returned as well as actually structuring the entity. I really appreciate you really sharing also a bit of your story and your answer to this question, just how you came from more of like a non-traditional background and you try to enter venture and were denied. So you start your own fund. It's really inspirational. And also just how you think about different ways to raise capital. 
That's really cool. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? So I'm a very big believer in your business success is a direct reflection of your emotional, spiritual, and mental development. And what I mean by that is when I started my business, we really stagnated for a long time until I really did the personal work to, you know, become more self-aware, to, you know, heal from anything that had happened in life, to really forgive and become a compassionate, empathetic leader. And that only strengthened my ability to collaborate, to work with others, to really, you know, read other people and understand their intentions so that we can build aligned missions and also become a good manager. And so uh, there are a number of books that like sort of hacking that emotional or mental and spiritual work to become a better leader that have really helped me along my path. I would say some interesting books that I'll include a couple. I would say one, Why Buddhism is True. That's a really good one for understanding the relevance of your thoughts in the mind and what's happening generally. And then on that note, there are a couple other books that I found really impactful as well. There's one book called Fear by Thich Nhat Hanh, as well as How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Um, that's a really interesting one on the history and study of psychedelics from strictly scientific, the emergence and discovery of its sort of abolition from the Western society and culture in general, and of course, legality as well. And then the sort of resurgence and in recent years and experiments that we're seeing in university or research centers within universities that are really proving the transformational impacts of certain psychedelics. So those ones are interesting. I would also say The Enlightened Gardener by Sidney Banks. And that one is really just powerful in helping sort of find peace in life, which only helps in this sort of entrepreneur, this long-term entrepreneurship journey. The two books, as far as on the professional side that I've found that are really helpful is The Hard Thing About Hard Things and also Super Forecasting for a venture investor that was a really interesting and really helpful book. But the other thing, it's not actually a book, but it's definitely something that I did that has extremely helped me. That's probably been likely the single most impactful thing on my venture career. So I do 10-day silent meditation retreats every year. It's called Vipassana and I do them in various places around the world. And why it's been so impactful is the basic premise of it is that suffering happens just very, very high level. You can research Vipassana after and get more insights on it. But the basic premise is that suffering happens through craving or aversion and and when you see anything or when you experience re reality is anything other than through objective awareness. And so you spend 10 days basically working on your objective awareness tools first through the breath and then through consciousness or through, you know, paying attention to the experience of your entire body. And then that translates to your external world. So you just really, really work on being able to see things as they actually are in the present moment. And that's really helped me in my meetings with founders and my meetings with potential partners and my meetings with investors instead of projecting my agenda and what I hope that they would be like onto them. It's helped me really sort of strip away those preconceived notions and those expectations to really be able to engage with the person and see them exactly as they are in the moment. Will this person, and then be able to, what I hope or what has seemed to happen is more accurately predict, you know, based on what this person is telling me right now, not what I want, Will this person be able to fulfill this role as an employee? Will this person be able to meet their target objectives that they're saying they will? 
as an entrepreneur? Will this investor be a right fit, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say for anyone in business and who has to interact with other people and also make decisions based on their own sort of processing systems, I would say a 10-day Vipassana will probably be life-changing. Great. And I really appreciate you also sharing a little bit about your business philosophy, about relating to the personal, relating to the emotional. That makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate you sharing just your overall story. I'm really excited to add all of these. I think only hard things, but hard things was on our little book page on the website. I think everything else is new. So really excited to add them all to our website. Well, Maya, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Totally. Well, thank you very much for having me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Maya on the show. I learned a ton from this conversation. I hope you did as well. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.